From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. So have you ever had one of those weeks where you feel like you've been on a treadmill for four consecutive hours binge watching eight episodes of your favorite public affairs show? Yeah, well, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have we all been there? It's it's been another full week at the legislature, but you know, maybe only two weeks or three or four or six or whatever, but a very busy week and a lot to get to. Because all joking aside, we are now into that budget setting mode, which is really the the closing phase of the legislative session. The stuff the legislature has to do, setting budgets, that, that's really ramped up this week. Yeah, basically finished uh, much of the budget setting process. And this week on Tuesday, uh, the Joint Budget Committee, Joint Finance Appropriations Committee, wrote the state's largest budget uh, which, as you know, which as our readers and listeners know, is the public school budget mm-hmm. broken down into seven different divisions. We were both there Tuesday morning, uh, but I guess the headline is that budget writers wrote an increase of 4.1% above the current level into next year's budget, and that corresponds to about 78, a little more than $78 million increase, and there could be a little bit more uh, to come, but it's a more... Although that's an increase, it's a little bit more austere than the past couple of years. Not more $100 million. Right, not the $100 million increases that we've seen in past years. But really, we kind of saw that coming. I mean, it was sort of in line with what Governor Little had requested and not too far out of line with what uh, State Superintendent Ibarra had requested. And really, on the big line items, the money is there in these budget bills. I mean, there's money there for teacher pay raises. They're assuming that the uh, veteran teacher pay structure bill passes, there's going to be some extra money thrown in for that. Money for literacy, money to make permanent the $26 million a year literacy initiative. There is money for social emotional learning, for for training for teachers. It's more of a a professional development line item. So it's a little bit of a finagle around, you know, the wording. But the money is more or less there as we would have expected at the start of the session. No big surprises. And significantly, All seven of those budget bills came out of the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee unanimously. Unanimously. Uh, Given that a little bit more competition for tight fiscal resources this year, I thought that was noteworthy, um, that it came out unanimous. And I thought maybe one of the question marks we did have going into it was what would they do with the social-emotional, that $1 million recommendation. As you pointed out, it's in there for professional development. Districts can use that money basically as they see fit. Uh, but the idea is it could be available to help training or resources to focus on social-emotional learning, uh, students' mental health and wellness, suicide prevention, those kinds of things. And that's right in line with that that very odd House Education Committee hearing I saw last month where the committee really pushed back against Superintendent Ibarra that day was presenting her recommendation, um, and it did not get a very warm reception. But nevertheless, uh, there is an increase in funding in that area and it's something that's important to the superintendent, it's something that's important to the governor, and it's obviously something that's important to uh, the members of JFAC. But part of the olive, but part of the compromise, and I think one of the olive branches that came out of uh, JFAC on this is uh, they're going to have a third-party study of, yeah. of social-emotional learning, of training, of what is going on right now in the schools to, to get a sense of where this $1 million fits into what's already happening, which we've seen this happen before. We've seen the uh, the budget committee ask for these kind of studies before, especially as the state ramps up new education initiatives, whether it's advanced opportunities or the literacy initiative or college and career counselors. 
JFAC has asked for these kind of third-party studies before, so uh, maybe not surprising that uh, that was something that they asked for again. Now, all these budget bills have to go through the House and the Senate, but you know, you got to think based on the unanimous vote coming out of JFAC that uh, prospects would be pretty good for all seven of these bills when they uh, when they do hit the House and Senate floors. Yeah, and we've talked about this before, but the governor and the legislature spared public schools from the, they're calling it the spending reset, but it's the 2% budget holdback uh, for the upcoming year and the 1% rescission from the current year. Public schools were spared from that. Um, so the governor kind of cleared the deck uh, to make some investments in public schools. He said that he would do that at the state of the state address, and he followed through, and we saw that. But uh, there were a couple of surprises when we got away from the public school budget itself and actually looked at Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ibarra's much smaller office budget. But there's a, a couple of big changes coming, and you really zeroed in on that, Kevin. But what happened and what does it mean? Yeah, and this really was a kind of startling development that came out on Tuesday in, in the in the budget committee. What the committee voted to do, and this was not unanimous, and we'll get to that, the committee voted to strip 18 positions out of uh, Superintendent Navarro's Department of Education. And this comes to about $2.7 million. So this is a chunk of money, and this is about a seventh of the staff within the State Department of Education. So it is a fairly big chunk of a large state department. Those positions and those dollars aren't being eliminated, they're being shifted over to the State Board of Education. And the argument that we heard on Tuesday was lawmakers wanted to have all of the data management and all of the IT, because that's what we're talking about here. We're yeah. talking about the data management and IT positions. The legislature, legislators pushing for this change are saying that they want to have all of this data under one roof, State Board of Education. State Board already gathers data for higher education, so this would extend that, and you'd have the State Board managing data for K-12 and higher ed. But, you know, after Tuesday's vote, I wanted to kind of dig in a little bit more. I found out a little bit more um, from Superintendent Ibarra's office, but I also found out a little bit more talking to uh, Senator Carl Crabtree, a Republican from Grangeville, who was really leading the push to make this move. What we heard from Ibarra's staff was that this really came upon them late in the game, that they got word the third week of February that something was afoot. That's only two weeks ago. And they had a meeting uh, with uh, budget staff on the 24th of February, so still we're only about two weeks ago. A couple of days later, Superintendent Ibarra sent a letter to uh, Steve Baer, the uh, Senate uh, co-chair of JFAC, articulating her concerns. And one of her concerns, and this is significant, I think this is where you get to the crux of the, the difference of opinion here, was that in her letter to Bear, she said, the primary focus in all of this data gathering is to help us figure out how to send money to the schools, how to distribute the $2 billion a year of general fund money that goes to the schools, that it's not an accountability tool, but that it's you know, a, you know, a money management tool. Right. Now, when I talked to Senator Crabtree on Thursday and wanted to get his perspective about, okay, where is this coming from and why are you doing this? He said right out of the gate, what I'm trying to do is manage the data. This is a management move. That's all this is. And to me, data is a tool for accountability. This is how we get away from opinions about what's going on in the schools to actual facts. And he said that, and I had to stop him and say, well, 
That's really interesting. And let me read you this quote from Superintendent Ibarra to, uh, to Senator Baer in, in her letter. So you've got this very stark philosophical difference about the role of data, the importance of data, the function of data. And I think that that really is what's underlying what happened in the committee on Tuesday. And this is, again, like all these budget bills, they have to go through the House and they go, have to go through the Senate. And then interestingly enough, if this budget bill passes both houses, it goes to Governor Brad Little's desk. And you got to remember, Little never asked for this move. His budget just kept all of those 18 positions and all of that $2.7 million under Ibarra's watch and, and, and in Ibarra's shop. So the governor's office isn't saying much of anything about this. Uh, I asked for comment. I did get comment. Not much of a comment, but I got a comment. And that was after running into Greg Wilson, the governor's uh, aide on education issues, and said, you know, hey, I'm trying to get a comment on this. And he just sort of smiled and said, yeah, we'll get you something and kind of walked away. But they are trying to stay away from this thing as, as <laughs> about as far as they can. Uh, State Board is not saying much of anything, and, and they are the agency that would wind up having to take on this uh, responsibility if that's what the legislature decides to do. So. Really interesting stuff. I mean, really interesting political development here because it's it's so rare to see the the budget committee strip money away from one agency and move it into another agency, let alone strip money away from one constitutional officer and, and move it elsewhere. I mean, yeah, legislature and the executive branch get into dust ups a lot. I mean, we saw it on Thursday. Oh, yeah. the, the House voted down. Uh, State Treasurer Julie Ellsworth's budget and the, the legislature, the House especially, and Ellsworth have been at odds for months over a dispute over office space in the State House. So, you know, for the House to vote down Ellsworth's budget, you know, feels like another development in that uh, tension between the legislature and that executive officer. But this one, you know, this was really surprising and it really kind of came out of nowhere and, and, you know, wanted to dig in a little bit further. Like I say, it was not unanimous on JFEC. Democrats yeah. and a couple of Republicans uh, pushed back on the idea. Yeah, I think that one passed, I want to say, 15 to 5 on Tuesday. That right, and that was move. after the Democrats uh, made a motion to keep the right. budget within, it, to keep Bavar's budget basically as is. So the right, Democrats status quo. Made a status quo motion. The four Democrats voted for it, and they were joined by two Republicans, uh, Dan Johnson from Lewiston and Scott Syme. Uh, representative from Caldwell. So that failed, then the subsequent motion passed, and now you've got a budget on the way that would, you know, make a really big fundamental change in the management scheme in the uh, State Department of Education and the State Board, something we'll watch very closely in the final two, three, four, six weeks of the session. Well, you're absolutely right about kind of the surprise nature of this. Superintendent Ibarra herself said, it was a little shocking, yeah. is mm -hmm. the phrase that she used, and I talked to her after uh, the hearing ended, and I asked Superintendent Ybarra about it, and she said that uh, she said I remain concerned about such a massive change, but I want to make sure my number one job is to make sure that districts have what they need, and that is what I will be working on to make sure that there is no disruption to the districts. And so, this, if these budgets pass, and if the governor signs them into law, they're looking at July first for making this transition, right. the first day of the new fiscal year, of the new budget year, basically. Mm -hmm. That's the calendar that the state of Idaho runs on. If you want to get caught up on a little bit, we had the budget coverage Tuesday, but you had the deeper dive, the look at this specific issue, uh, and IdahoEdNews.org is the place to be uh, to check out your story, right. uh, taking a look at, uh, just zeroing in on this exact debate over the 
It's the IT and the data management functions. It's the funding for that, and it's those 18 full-time positions. So it's a big move. Um, and maybe the most surprising thing that we saw out of the budget setting oh, definitely. process. I, I think you know, it was kind of a boilerplate budget process until they got to uh, Ibarra's office budget, departmental budget. So we'll, we'll watch all of those budget bills as the, the session unfolds because we are starting to see some floor votes now on, on education budgets. Significantly one passed on, on Thursday. Uh, the Senate approved a state board budget that included $7 million in permanent ongoing funding, additional funding. Uh, made permanent now for the Opportunity Scholarship, for that college scholarship program. So that passed, that goes to the House. A lot to watch on the budget front. And, you know, a lot to watch still on the standards issue. You know, I think we've gone maybe two whole weeks on the podcast without talking about standards. Another development, this may be the last big development in the standards debate. A little bit of, uh, you know, kumbaya between the House and Senate Education Committees this week. Yeah, and uh, so just to catch people up, the standards debate obviously dominated the first six or seven weeks of this legislative session. At one point, House Education Committee had actually voted to repeal all of the academic standards for English, for math, and for science. And then they were overruled by the Senate Education Committee, which reinstated or kept the standards in place. So those will be on the books, and those are on the books. But what's new is this letter uh, that Mm -hmm. legislators have drafted and approved. Uh, it first came out of the Senate Education Committee, and then the House Education Committee took a look at it the following day. But they're writing a letter to Governor Little, Superintendent Ibarra, and the State Board of Education saying that they think it's time to replace the Common Core Aligned Standards. And they had kind of suggestions in three different areas to look at um, for both English, math, and science. Science isn't Common Core, but it's been kind of lumped in with that debate. Uh, the legislators laid it out that they kind of turned it around on the state officials and said, we don't want to waste any more time having you put forward standards that parents aren't going to approve, that the legislature won't be able to approve. Right. So it's kind of interesting. The letter itself is not binding in any way. It's just a, um, a way to make their feelings noted. Right. Uh, and, and, and a lot of you know, fairly strong opinions in that yeah. letter. I mean, it's a fairly prescriptive letter in terms of what legislators say they want to see in, in the new set of standards. I'm just going to kind of scroll down to our coverage yeah. and hit, hit a couple of talking points. In English language arts, the, the lawmakers say they want, quote, a better balance between fiction and nonfiction reading materials emphasizing value-rich, historically important, and uplifting literature, particularly American and English literature, and then when you get to science, and we know what the controversy about science yeah. standards has been for four of the past five legislative sessions, um, the lawmakers said they want um, they want the standards to, quote, provide balance in standards that have been politicized. And they cite you know, energy sources as an example, that they want students to learn the positive and negative aspects of various energy sources. So, you know. At least one member of the Senate Education Committee, Sheree Buckner-Webb, said that when she first read the letter, um, she found it a little bit heavy-handed. She backed away from that a little bit, and ultimately the the entire Senate Education Committee signed on to the idea of having Chairman Dean Mortimer, Vice Chair Stephen Thane, sign the letter. The House is on board, as you mentioned. Um, And this is one step in where we see the standards debate unfolding. Agreeing on the letter and agreeing on wording in the letter is a first step towards the House taking up the idea of the interim committee. Now, this is something the Senate passed weeks ago. 
setting up a, a legislative committee to work on standards during the summer, during the off season. House has not taken that up, but with the letter now in place and with both houses in agreement on the letter, uh, House education is uh, expected now to take up the idea of the interim committee next week. That, assuming that gets out of uh, House education, that goes to the House floor. So we're starting to see that path forward. And what we're seeing is that uh, standards are going to be discussed in detail this summer going into next year. And these lawmakers are saying, regardless of how this thing turns out, we need to move away from Common Core and do something different. Yeah, and I think that the takeaway here is that uh, the standards will remain in place, obviously, this year and the upcoming school year, but the debate is far from over. We're going to keep no. having debates over academic standards for the foreseeable future for legislative sessions to come. I do want to point out just really quickly, although the House Education Committee adopted the letter, um, they really made it more difficult than it needed to be and weren't quite sure how to handle it. These kinds of things it's often house happen. Education kind of, uh, yeah, house education kind of. Yeah. It's house education being house education. Uh, there was some back and forth over whether they all wanted to sign it. And then the Democrats said, hold on, I'm not signing this thing. You can't force me to sign it. And so they, they're basically going to have the chair and the vice chair and then of the Republican majority, whoever wants to sign it can sign it. But the Democrats said, you know, this letter does not reflect the fact that the majority of educators who came out for those public hearings during the first part of the legislative session, the majority of them supported retaining the standards and keeping mm -hmm, the standards. Right. Uh, Democrats in particular, Representative Steve Birch and Representative John McCrosty pointed that out and said, letter doesn't reflect the testimony that we heard. And they can't sign it because they don't agree with everything that's written on the page. Uh, but the letter still will be going forward. Uh, it was approved uh, on a voice vote with the uh, Democrats saying they, they don't support it or they wouldn't support signing it, but they were comfortable letting the other people sign it. But I, I guess my takeaway is we're going to keep having these debates about the standards. We already knew that English and math, I want to say, would have been up for a normal review in 2021 anyways. But I think we're going to keep hearing about these standards for the foreseeable future. Right. And, and, and then as we watch this unfold, what will be really important to watch is, well, what do these new standards look like? And yeah. how do they really differ from Common Core? Because the experience in other states that have dropped Common Core is that the new standards really aren't all that different than what uh, was adopted under the umbrella of Common Core. So, And it kind of went through a time-consuming, expensive process of spinning their wheels to get back to a pretty pretty near where they were before. Yeah, uh, and and where we're going to be going forward. I mean, this this discussion is far from over, and now it just you know will spill over into the summer and into the 2021 session at the very least. Uh, it'll keep us busy, though, so we'll continue yes, to follow yes. it. A topic we've got to get to because it is the topic of the day globally is the, uh, the coronavirus. And we had uh, some developments on the coronavirus issue in Idaho and in Idaho education. And you got to underscore, you know, let's not bury the lead here. Uh, Idaho has no cases of coronavirus that have been reported as of here we are Friday afternoon. Um, but you are starting to see schools taking precautionary steps on the coronavirus issue. Uh, Devin Bodkin's been following this for us this week. Um, a couple of school districts in north central Idaho in the Moscow area, Genesee and Troy, closed the doors on Monday uh, as a precautionary effort to kind of to clean their facilities to, you know, to be sure that there is nothing, uh, that there's no trace of coronavirus or, or, or anything like that in, in the schools. 
State Department of Education issued some guidelines for schools for, for dealing with coronavirus or halting the spread of coronavirus, uh, some very kind of generic guidelines that are probably common sense for everybody who doesn't want to get sick. If you're not feeling well, stay home. Uh, you know, if you're, you know, if you're coughing, cover up your mouth. If you're well, washing your hands wash for your 20 hands. seconds or more, that's yeah. a big one. We hear yeah, that the, a lot. Yeah, the 20-second rule. That they we're even put all signs about. up in the uh, state capitol in the restrooms uh, encouraging people to wash their hands with soap for, for more than 20 seconds. And so the word, the word is getting out for sure. Right, and I think you're, you're seeing a lot of precautionary steps being taken. Boise State on Thursday announced that four international students who just recently arrived in, in Boise are going to be self-isolated for two weeks. Now, these students tested negative when they arrived in the States. They were tested at uh, Seattle-Tacoma Airport and came up negative, but Boise State is uh, doing the self-isolation with these four students out of an abundance of caution. You even saw this uh, come up in JFAC on Friday, on that final day of yeah. budget setting in JFAC. Uh, lawmakers approved $2 million of emergency funding to, to put towards uh, response to coronavirus. So even though still no cases of coronavirus in the state, this issue continues to unfold. The news continues to break. Um, I, I think there are a lot of folks in the, the health community and certainly in the education community who are trying to get out ahead of what might happen. And, and I think you saw a lot of evidence of that this week. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we'll continue to, to follow that insofar as it could affect um, schools or events. We'll continue uh, to watch it. The governor weighed in. The governor had a press conference. But like you said, our Eastern Idaho reporter, Devin Bodkin, focused on that. So if you want to find out a little bit more specifics about the guidelines uh, from the State Department of Education, just head over to idahoednews.org, and there's a couple helpful tips in there. Um, but more stories to talk about. The The transgender athletics bill continues to be in the news this week. There was a rally at the State House that our Sammy Edge covered, uh, but the bill has continued its path, uh, yeah. as you followed it, Kevin. Um, I, I guess, get us caught up with the latest. Yeah, let's let's catch up on everything that's happened on this issue this week. You, you mentioned uh, the rally at the State House Tuesday evening. We have full coverage of that from Sammy Edge. Chris Mosier, who is a transgender athlete, a tri- triathlete from Chicago, uh, came to Boise to speak against House Bill 500, the transgender athletics bill. He's become a, a real figure in this debate. Uh, he's been active on social media, criticizing this bill. Called it the worst in the country. Yeah, he said it is the worst bill in the country uh, regarding transgender athletics and transgender athletes' rights. Fast forward to Friday morning. Uh, I was in the stand at uh, State Affairs Committee, as was uh, Sammy. She was taking a bunch of photos for us uh, from the hearing. This was uh, the Senate's turn to take up the, uh, the bill. We heard a lot of familiar things that we've heard. Um, Barbara Ehart, the House co-sponsor, Mary Souza, the Senate co-sponsor, Again, couching this as a fairness and an access issue, saying that this is designed to, to make sure that girls and women can still participate in athletics in high school and, and college. But what we heard this time around, I, this felt like a more nitty-gritty discussion of how this bill would work should it become law. A lot of questions, a lot of testimony, a lot of back and forth about the wording of this bill. And we've talked about this wording of the bill, we've written about this wording of the bill, the Attorney General's office issued an opinion that focused in, in part, on the wording of the bill. And we're really kind of honing in on a section that says that in the event of a dispute, 
the gender of an athlete shall be determined. And shall is a really important word in, in state code. Shall is mandatory. It's, yeah. not, it's not optional. Shall is shall. Not, shall is not may. The gender of an athlete shall be determined, and it lays out a three-step process, one step being an external and internal in examination of, of the student. And that has become really the, the focal point of the debate over the implementation of this bill, should it become law. Uh, Michelle Stennett, the Senate Minority Leader, uh, was honing in on that wording during the debate and during the discussion at the committee level, saying, look, words matter. And this is what the words say. And she was going back to the attorney general's opinion. What we heard from Representative Ehart and from Senator Souza is that they say that this wording has been vetted, that it's you know gone through you know legal review from other groups around the country, and that it's not mandatory. And they're saying that this idea of this that all students in all disputes are going to be subject to a physical exam, an invasive physical exam. They're saying that's just not the case, that that would be rare if, that that would rarely occur if ever. Uh, you know, so I, that's the crux of the implementation aspect of the issue. And I should point out, when we talk about the legal aspects of this and the Attorney General's opinion, that is by no means the only issue that the AG's office raised. No, there were nine pages. Uh, nine pages, and as I wrote about it last week, about six bullet points, this being just one. But that was the one that really got focused in on today. As for a lot of the other testimony, we heard from uh, some folks that we heard from in the, at the House hearing. Folks came back to speak to Senate State Affairs, uh, touching on a lot of the same themes. We heard from, you know, we heard from a, a champion power lifter who wants the bill passed. She says that this is the best way to make sure that girls and women have access in sports. We heard from a retired uh, women's basketball coach from Ricks College, now, now BYU-Idaho, who said that if you make girls compete with uh, transgender girls, uh, transgender women, they will get injured. That the, the physical difference is, is, is too great. We also heard from a transgender athlete uh, from Boise State, uh, a transgender woman who competed in, in cross country, who said, look, I would not want to be in a boy's locker room or a men's locker room when I'm transitioning. I feel like that would put me at risk of being assaulted or bullied or harassed, uh, you know, appealing to the committee to, to vote this bill down. And the balance of the testimony on Thursday, on Friday, I should say, was against the bill. Uh, I, I counted 19 people who testified, 12 in opposition, seven in favor. Hearing will continue on Monday. I anticipate that there will probably be a vote on Monday. Yeah, and it's been interesting, but our friend Nathan Brown of the Idaho Falls Post-Register has reported that business community is starting to get active. And there was a letter signed by some of Idaho's largest employers, Chobani, Cliff Bar, HP, and Micron, coming out against these House-passed transgender bills. Nathan Brown reported on that for the Post-Register. He also reported on INL director, uh, mm -hmm. raising some yeah. concerns, not naming a specific bill, but saying he was worried about the tone and the message coming out of the legislature, saying that Idaho might be intolerant. And so... This is becoming a national issue. Right. Um, we're starting to we're starting to hear from all kinds of people uh, about this and about what it means. And um, you were at the hearing on Friday. The latest is is that that will continue um, first thing Monday morning. It's in the Senate now. It's in the Senate State Affairs Committee. 
um, and that hearing will continue Monday. Right, and you know, as as you said, as you mentioned with the the blowback against this bill and other transgender rights bills, this has become the defining issue of the session. Yeah, uh, this has become probably the most talked about issue of the session. We've seen protests and, and the rally that we saw Tuesday night. Uh, Friday morning for another hearing, you had an overflow crowd. You had the, the hearing room was full, people were listening uh, over the stream in an adjacent uh, meeting room. I mean, this is an issue that's that has polarized and galvanized folks on, on both sides. Yeah, I know you'll continue uh, to follow at the homepage, www.idahoednews.org is the latest uh, to find out about that bill as it moves through the process and it comes back to the Senate State Affairs Committee on Monday morning. Next week is going to be a busy week, but not just uh, because of the hearings continuing at the legislature. You're tracking kind of an under-the-radar school election. It's going to have a big impact in something like 41 school districts, right, Kevin? Yeah, so Tuesday's an election day, and on the one end of the spectrum, it's an election day because you have presidential primaries in Idaho, both on the Republican and Democratic ticket. But at the local level, at the micro level, you have about $175 million worth of levies across the state. 41 of Idaho's 115 school districts will be going to voters asking for, for levies. Now that number, that $175 million, I mean, that's a lot of money. But what we've seen in past years, that's really not as big as we've seen in past March elections. As I've said before, and as we've written, March has become de facto school election date for a lot of supplemental levy yeah. elections. It's it's by far the most popular date to run supplemental levies. Success rate's a little bit higher for levies and bond issues in March as opposed to May and August and November, the other election dates that are currently uh, available uh, for schools to use. But still, 41 districts and, and some high stakes uh, for some of these districts. Nampa is coming back with a, bond, uh, with, a, with a supplemental levy four months after they had one fail by 11 votes. Um, 11 we, votes. 11 votes. Not 10. Yeah, this, 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 don't get us started on this, but it is 11 votes. Uh, Kamii, a smaller district in north central Idaho, they ran a supplemental levy a year ago. It failed. The fallout was that the district felt like the only way to make ends meet was to close the middle school and to move the middle school students into the grade school and the high school. Well, they're going back uh, with another levy on Tuesday to try to uh, to get money that they can use to reopen the middle school and maybe get out ahead of uh, providing some, some new programs and get out ahead of some, some building maintenance issues. Really high stakes for a district like Kamii, high stakes for a district like Nampa, other uh, larger districts around the state that have uh, ballot measures, uh, Caldwell. Valley View, Middleton. We'll have the full results on Wednesday as best as we can put them together. That's uh, usually a, an ongoing project on Wednesday mornings. We uh, comb through the election results and comb through the county numbers, but we will uh, update that uh, story as quickly as possible and get it as complete and as uh, you know, done and dusted as early as possible on Wednesday. Well, it's a great resource right now if you want to go uh, to the homepage, idahoednews.org, and find out you know, if you live in one of these 41 communities, in one of these 41 districts, if you want to find out what's going to be on your ballot Tuesday and kind of get prepared uh, for next week to make your decision, uh, that's out there. So that's a great, great resource right now. And then, as you said, I know you'll be up early Wednesday morning tracking down results and making sense uh, of the fallout from everything. And so um, 
be a good time to come back on Wednesday and right. find out uh, kind of how everything fares. And just a footnote, because we've talked about it before, but we want to bring it full circle. These March election dates are being talked about at the State House. There's yeah, there's a bill. A bill. bill passed the House uh, Friday last week that would eliminate the March and August uh, school election dates. That bill has not yet been heard in the Senate. We'll keep an eye out on that as well. So a lot going on here as we head into the still-to-be-determined final number of weeks of the session. Yeah, legislative leaders have targeted March 20th for a potential adjournment date. That would be two weeks from right now. But if I don't know. I, they did kill those two budget bills we talked about this week. Those don't really relate to education, but those need to be rewritten, and they can be. Um, but I'm not sure. I think everything would have to line up just about exactly right to get out March 20th. And if there's a hiccup at all, we're going to be here for another week and, or two. And, and that's and, the norm. And we're seeing potential hiccups not necessarily related to education. You have an impasse right now over a property tax bill that was that the Senate now wants to amend. Um, boy, we've seen this before. This is like a sure harbinger of spring. The Senate yeah. radiator capping a house pass tax bill. It seems to happen every year. That's not going to speed up the process. Um, House and Senate still have not kind of figured out the path forward on approving all of the agency rules. The they were hoping to have that ironed out like the, the first of the week session. of the session. But that didn't happen. Uh, yeah. So that's still kind of hanging, hanging fire. A grocery tax credit bill has been sitting on the third reading calendar on the House side for, it seems like, two weeks. It's going to uh, continue to sit and, there and for another gonna, couple days. And that may now be kind of a tactical maneuver on the House's part as, you know, the you know, difference of opinion emerges on the other tax bill that passed the House. So, you know, a lot of moving parts. We're kind of always at this point in the legislative session where things, uh, you know, things can move fast or they can grind to a halt. And uh, one way or the other, we'll be there. Yeah, we're, we're going to continue to uh, be there. March 20th, maybe just a touch early. Uh, who knows? We'll see if they can do it. Uh, we'll be back here every day to see if they can do it or not. And we'll keep track of the big education issues, which are still very much in play and very yeah, much undecided. Um, need to find out what's going to happen on teacher pay. There could be a hearing on that bill next week. We're going to follow the transgender bill. We're going to follow the election bills and all the school and budgets. And a, lot, and a lot of things just kind of emerging at the end of the session. A bill that we're just barely getting uh, on our radar passed the House this week. It, it kind of sailed through House education without a hearing. They put it on a fast track, yeah. They put on a fast track to pass, and it did pass on a party-line vote. It regards uh, teacher certification. For non-public institutions, it's really uh, driven by ABCTE, a uh, you know, which has been pushing for this bill, and you've you've tracked ABCTE and their testimony in House Education. Yep. Um, that's a bill that we'll now have to see what happens with it in the Senate, and it's it's an important you know, Gary Marshall, who's sponsoring the bill, is saying this is a first step towards revamping teacher certification, so it's it's a big deal. And it's moving very fast, so we'll keep an eye on that, as well as all the other things that we're keeping an eye on. A lot going on. Yeah, for sure. It, uh, it never slows down. But uh, we always appreciate you guys following along with us. We have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this ever-complicated intersection, education policy and education politics. Thanks so much. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.